You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week we're hearing from lead pastor Gare Jones. Amen. Well, we are in the final week of our series looking at how God describes himself in the Old Testament. If you recall, this whole year, every now and again, we're diving into bits of the Old Testament to try and make sense of the Old Testament. Because I don't know about you, but I grew up really loving this guy called Jesus, or at least thinking I can make sense of him, but the Old Testament was confusing at best. And at worst, it seemed to be in discontinuity to Jesus. And yet what we've been doing this year is to see, is that really the case? And the more we dig into it, we see actually the Old Testament is very much in continuity with the New Testament. That Jesus in the New Testament is the same God that is in the Old Testament. And we've been looking in this little series at how God of the Old Testament describes himself. If you want to know who someone is, then it's best to go straight to them and say, hey, how would you describe yourself? And this is what Moses did in Exodus chapter 34, where God said, oh, if you want to know what I'm like, here is what I'm like. And we've been going through that together. And we're now getting to the last of that series, looking at the tough bit. You'll notice what the tough bit is as we read this passage. So let's look at Exodus chapter, oh, before we do that, if you have questions and, hang on a minute, what about this bit of the Old Testament? What about that bit of the Old Testament? I can't cover everything here. So we do have some resources for you, depending on whether you like to read, watch, or listen. And so if you like to read, How Not to Read the Bible by Dan Kimball and God Has a Name by John Mark Comer, fantastic books. If you want to watch something, then the Bible Project is just unbelievable. Tim Mackey and the folks there do a great job of breaking down tough biblical theology into five minute videos, it's unbelievable. And then listen, if you have a particular question like I have about what about all the violence in the Old Testament? Well, Josh Butler did a great talk lecture at our friends at Bridgetown Church in Portland. And so if you Google that, you'll get that. I think it's one of the best out there, really helpful. But let's go to Exodus chapter 34 and look at how God describes himself and see if you spot the bit of this passage where you go, hmm, not too sure about that. Exodus chapter 34 begins. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, which means Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. It starts off so well. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, abounding in love, but all of a sudden it takes a hard right. It's like, what? Punishing children for what their parents do. That just seems absolutely out of line. This is not who I would think is a God who's compassionate and gracious. He would then in the next sentence, but I also do that. It's odd, isn't it? I grew up where that kind of stuff was just buried under the church carpet. 
Let's just worship and write songs about this first bit, but let's just conveniently forget the second bit. It was a kind of a pick and mix the Bible. We would only really ever celebrate what we understood and seemed to be what we liked, but bury the rest and ignore the rest. And eventually in my mid-20s, I couldn't do this any longer. I couldn't actually with integrity follow a faith which just buried bits of the Old Testament and ignore them completely. I left the church for a while and it wasn't until I came back, it was through Alpha, I came back, because there was this place I could ask these questions and go on this journey to go, guys, can we just talk about the elephant in the room here? That God punishes children for the sins of the parents. What is that about? I went on this journey exploring these things. And as I went on this journey, I realized that actually, as you dig into the real meaning of these things, they aren't what they seem. And things start to take shape. Alpha was the beginning of that journey for me. On the way through to seminary, etc., I was always the guy who said, hey, can we just talk about that verse? What's that about? And the more I have dug into the verses no one else likes to speak about, the more I realize we need not fear them because they show actually the beauty of God. Even this one. You see, reading the Bible, I discovered it was kind of like a crossword puzzle. Making sense of God is like a crossword puzzle. See, I love crosswords. I'm not very good at them. In fact, I don't ever do the cryptic ones. I only do like the easy ones, like three letters for an animal that hates dogs. You know, just things like that. And and I could get a lot of them, uh, but sometimes I'm stuck, often I'm stuck, and so I go out for help. I go to my friends or whoever's around, hey, what is that? What's four letters? And, And they help me. And sometimes we can't get it, and so we go, don't worry, let's leave that. We'll come back to it. And let's do the words around it. It'll give us a few clues, and then we can go, oh, now I get it. And then there's some, some bits, I just, some ones I don't know at all. That's kind of like my journey with the Bible and understanding God. There's a lot which we can know and it makes sense and it's beautiful. Particularly when we look through the person of Jesus, we go, oh my word, and we're filling in the theology of God, this is amazing. And sometimes I come across something in the Bible, I go, I just don't get it. So like a crossword, I ask for help. I go to other people, hey, do you get this? Particularly go to scholars and biblical scholars who write commentaries and uh, I don't go to Instagram for my ask a friend for questions. But they help me, oh, I'm not the first to hit this and there's some really helpful answers. Then sometimes I don't understand and they go, well, I'll come back to it. And I'm getting to know more about Jesus, I'm getting to know more about things and then filling in some of the things that gives me clues to go, oh, now I get it. But also, as you would expect with me, there's lots of things I just don't get. That's why I'm on my 42nd Alpha course. It's because there's still some mystery. There's still some things I don't understand. And maybe I never will because I'm not God. He is. And so there's always going to be a few things that are mysterious. But one thing I do know is the more I journey into the tough bits, the, the questions no one else likes to answer or even think about, the more actually I see, oh, this is actually coherently working together. That now in my life, and I'm 50, I go... Man, yes, there's some bits which are mysterious, but there's a heck of a lot filled in. And it makes sense and it's coherent. And I'm not going to disrupt the majority because one or two things I don't get yet. And when it comes to a verse like this, 
I read it maybe like you do and go, I don't get it. I need to ask a friend. I need to phone a friend on this one. I need to get some help. And I wanna go on this journey with you today of actually digging into what does God mean when he says, I punish the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. What does that mean? And so this is a bit of a different sermon today because I'm actually, if it's okay with you, we're gonna deep dive theology. Is that okay? We're just, it may not be fluffy, it may not scratch the itch you came in this morning, but I promise you it's gonna be deep dive theology and show you, oh my gosh, this is not something to run from, this is a God of beauty. So, get your scuba gear on, we're going down. (laughs) What does God mean? punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. Well, first of all, it's strange if it means what it sounds like on the surface. It's strange. Not only strange, it's contradictory. It's contradictory to God's general and consistent revelation throughout all of scripture that he is fair and doesn't punish innocent people for the sins of others. That this is not something which is a theme throughout scripture. In fact, this is against the theme of scripture. For example, there's a verse, just one, I'll give you in Deuteronomy 26, where he says this, fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. Throughout scripture, he sees that he deals justly with people. He is fair. That's why he begins his self-description. I'm compassionate and gracious, abounding in love. Part of that is fairness. So what does it mean? Well, we have two choices. Either God is confused about himself and this is a genuine conflict or maybe it doesn't mean what we first think it means on the surface. And that is where we find ourselves. This doesn't mean what it first sounds like. Why is that? Well, first of all, this statement in Exodus Exodus chapter 34 is the second restatement of this principle. That God is summarizing to Moses, do you remember when I said this about the generation thing? Well, let me repeat that. And what we find is, like often we do in life, when we summarize something people know very well, we tend to summarize it and shorten it. We don't repeat it word for for word, but we go, hey, do you remember when? Yeah, yeah, it's that. And we shorten it. Not to shorten it with a different meaning, but just to abbreviate it for time's sake. That's what we see here. That Moses knew very well what God was talking about around these generational things. Even though it was less words, it was shortened, Moses knew because the first instance of God saying this was in the most famous passage of the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. This is the first time that God says this phrase, but interestingly, he explains it a bit better. Let's read it in Deuteronomy chapter five, beginning in verse nine. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Do you see the extra words? 
that in the first instance where God talks about these generations, he's talking not just, I'm punishing the sins of the children for the third and fourth generation. He says, I'm punishing them for the sins of the children for those who hate me. In other words, if you look at the Hebrew, what God is saying here is when children continue to hate me like their parents, I will deal with them just as I did their parents. It's when you continue the sins of your parents, don't think you're gonna get a hall pass. Just because it's normalized, it's just how we roll. That's not how God works. He's consistent. I will love those, I'll put my blessings onto those who, those who live in line with who I am. And if you don't continue to live in who I am, if you continue to hate me, then I will deal with you just in the same way as I did your parents. This meaning is fleshed out in other examples where this, this phrase is Repeated. So in Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 32 quotes God is gracious and compassionate and he punishes the sins of the father, the children who carry on the sins of the, of the father. And he adds this, just to kind of clarify, I think he kind of wanted to make sure that we all knew that God is fair and not punishing innocent people. Because Jeremiah adds, God, you reward each one according to his ways and according to his deeds. Jeremiah's adding some color commentary. This is how God is. He's fair, he's consistent, including not turning a blind eye, even to stuff that is going on generationally. So again, in Exodus 20, this is the first instance where God repeats the Ten Commandments. He says this, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So what we see here is God is saying, I continue to be faithful. This is a dimension of my faithfulness. I don't change. I will continue to love as I've always loved, but where I see evil, I will continue to oppose it. Because it is destroying you and it's destroying those around you. I'm not someone like culture who basically changes my ethics based on what is normative in this generation. I'm consistent and consistently against that which is destroying my creation. Even if you go, it's just everyone's doing it. The Bible Project summarized it this way. God does not punish a new generation for the sins of a former generation. But God does hold children who don't learn from their parents' mistakes accountable. It is the responsibility of every generation to not repeat the mistakes of those that come before them. Do you remember I said earlier that when you come across tough bits, you should phone a friend, right? Phone an Old Testament scholar. So I didn't, but I read his commentary on Exodus, one of the leading ones called Douglas Stewart. This is a big quote, but it's worth it because we're going deep dive today. He said this, this explanatory section of the second commandment about do not worship idols has been widely misunderstood. 
It does not represent an assertion that God actually punishes an innocent generation for sins of a predecessor generation. Rather, this oft-repeated theme speaks of God's determination to punish successive generations for committing the same sins they learned from their parents. In other words, God will not say, I won't punish this generation for what they're doing to break my covenant because after all, they merely learned it from their parents who did it too. Instead, God will indeed punish generation after generation to the third and fourth generation if they keep doing the same sorts of sins that prior generations did. If the children continue to do the sins their parents did, they'll receive the same punishment as their parents. It's the consistency and the faithfulness of God to purge evil out of his world. So why is he saying this here? Why is God taking the time to go, by the way, Moses, I just wanna wanna repeat what I said in the second commandment. Well, it's because the context here is Moses up the mountain talking to God and down the mountain, guess what the people of Israel are doing? They're worshiping a golden calf. They keep on repeating what their forefathers did. In fact, up until now, this is the continued story of the people of God. The book of Genesis is not a story of heroes crushing it. It's people, broken people, messing up. Generation after generation. And God is saying, Moses, look, I am so gracious. I am so compassionate. Look, I'm so abounding in forgiveness. Look at the history so far. I've I've forgiven you. And I've even rescued you out of Egypt but dude, I'm not gonna just let evil go. I'm not just gonna turn a blind eye. I know you keep doing this stuff and I love you guys, but I'm, I'm not gonna suddenly just go, oh, it's all right. You guys can just keep doing it. I guess that's all you know. Evil's a big deal. We want God to think evil's a big deal. We don't want him to normalize evil out of, popularity and consensus. We want him to go, I know everybody's doing it, but everyone's dying doing it. I'm gonna oppose it. I'm gonna punish, another word is discipline. I'm gonna enter into every generation and go, I'm not gonna give up on you until I've purged this out of you. I love you guys too much for that. I mean, Don't we live in that moment now where this city has normalized behavior? Sometimes the church has normalized behavior. Like God's going, I'm not normalizing that. It's not in line with my design. It's not in line with human flourishing. It's not in line with how I've created you. It's not in line with how you're gonna actually live fruitfully in this world. I know everyone's doing it. I know you may have grown up with that. I know LA celebrates that. I know you are being egged on by that. I know, but I'm never gonna stop trying to get rid of it. I love you too much. I love you too much. I mean, I know in my life, there are things that I am doing today because I've normalized it thinking, well, it's just kind of what I grew up with. I mean, it just seems a popular thing. 
Well, what I do with my money, what I do with my body, or what I, do, what I watch, or what I say. It's like, unless someone actually calls me out, sometimes I kind of feel like this is just normalized. A lot of family of origin things. I go, well, I'm very grateful for so many things in my upbringing. I also know there are some dysfunctions that I should not normalize. And I have friends and a wife who refuses to normalize them, as God does. It was Pete Cazaro who said, Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. <laughs> Which means, great, I'm saved, I'm in the kingdom of God, but I am still acting out the dysfunction of my family. And here's what God's reaction to that is. I love you, I'm gracious, I'm compassionate, abounding in love. I love you too much just to let you keep doing that. I, I wanna call time and save you from these things. I don't want you to repeat the patterns of the past. I, I wanna break these curses, break these behaviors, break these mindsets, break these things that you may come into the fullness. I will not give up. Where there's evil, I will always oppose it because I love you too much. But why does he say then only to the third and fourth generation? Is it kind of like God himself runs out of patience after four generations? Oh my gosh, okay, fifth generation is now normalized, I'm too tired. No. You see, what God is doing here is just profoundly beautiful. Because do you remember in his self-description of himself, there are two words which kind of feel opposite. There's a tension. On the one hand, in Exodus 34, he says, I am forgiving. I, I abound in love and forgiveness. And then the next breath, he says, I will not let the guilty go unpunished. It's like, God, did you hear yourself? Like, what's that about? Like, these, are these like equal and opposite forces that you're going, gosh, I wanna, I, wanna, I wanna send justice and claim my rights and I, oh, I wanna forgive them. It's like, what's going on here? Is this, is this God opposing himself? And it's into this tension that God explains to us, no, I'm not in tension. I'm not equally opposite. They work together, but let me show you how they work together. And this is why he used this language around generations. He's going, look, for my love and forgiveness, I'm gonna show it to a thousand generations. A thousand. But my discipline of those who keep on messing up, to third and fourth. To third and fourth. He is intentionally putting this contrast in there around the two areas of tension. He's saying, look, they're not the same. They're not two boxers, Rocky and Apollo Creed, going 10 rounds. They work together in this way. See, these generational terms, thousands and third and fourth, are actually not literal, they're idioms, they're Hebrew idioms. It's not like he only shows love to a thousand generations and then not the thousand and one. No, the thousand is hyperbolic, like love. Like, I love you to the moon and back. I mean, you can't describe my love. I'll never stop loving you. It's my primary emotion for you. It's why I start out with, I'm gracious, I'm compassionate, abounding in love. 
to a thousand. You can't exhaust it. That is the engine of my life for you. You can't imagine how much I love you. You can't imagine how much I rejoice over you. You can't imagine what it was like when I created you. The joy inside. A thousand. But because I mess up with, because you mess up, man, when you do stuff, I gotta intervene. And see, the third and fourth language here does not literally mean three and four generations. It's a Hebrew idiom for this. Just as long as necessary. Just as long as necessary. Necessary for what? To bring me back, to heal me, to restore me, to kind of break me up, to restore what I've lost, to, to renew my inside, to heal me from the toxic behavior that I've been exhibiting. See, God is saying, look, my primary emotion is love for a thousand. And because of my love, I will push back on evil in you, but I'm not loving it. I'm not going, ooh, I'm not gleeful about it. I'm coming in as a parent to a child going, dude, let me, let me just intervene. I wanna, I wanna stop this behavior. I'm gonna have to call time on this. I'm gonna have to bring discipline. Just as much as necessary that you come back into health. I'm not some kind of schizophrenic God going, ooh, I can't wait to punish. It's what the writer to the letter James says, writer James says, he sums up the whole thing like this. He says in four words, that whole passage is summarized in four words. He says this, mercy triumphs over justice. This is our God. He's gonna purge stuff out of you. He's not gonna turn a blind eye to the things sabotaging your life and hurting others. He will intervene, but just enough so that he can show you his love and bring you back into the life that he has for you. Mercy triumphs over justice. This is the whole picture of God in the Old Testament and the New. That God is desperate for his creation to restore them back from the stupid decisions that we make. He's not going, well, I'm done. He didn't even do that with Adam and Eve. They rebelled, they broke the heart of God, they rejected him. Whether you see it as paradigm or historical, doesn't matter, it's true. Humanity have rebelled against God and what is God's reaction? Is it pure justice? Great, thy will be done. Or is it mercy? Oh, I'm gonna bring you back. I'm gonna bring you back. He promised at the moment of their rebellion, this is not gonna be the end of the story. Mercy, I'm gonna bring you back. It's what he did with the people of Israel in Genesis. Oh my gosh, Abraham and all of his descendants kept messing up. But God did something, he says, look, I want you to know I will never give up on you. And he formed a covenant with them. And he said, look, there's promises I'm gonna keep. And guess what? The promises you have to keep, even if you don't keep them, I'll keep them for you. I will never give up on you. I'm not gonna sweep evil under the carpet, but mercy is gonna triumph over justice. Fast forward to the Apostle Paul. He grew up called Saul and he hated the church. He hated Christians, he was persecuting the church, locking up Christians, trying to squash this whole Jesus thing. A man who was rebelling against God on full display and what is God's response? 
I'm gonna break into his life. This is not, I did not create Saul for this. I'm gonna go after him because mercy triumphs over justice. I'm gonna bring him back. And for the rest of Paul's life, he sings the story in word and in deed of mercy triumphs over justice. See, this is our God. You wanna know how he feels about you? I love you to a thousand. Do you know what he feels when you mess up? When you hurt yourself, when you hurt others? Okay, I'm not gonna overlook it for your sake and for the sake of the world, but I'm coming in. I'm coming in just enough to get rid of it. I don't want that for you. I'm cheering you on. I'm always there, because I believe in you. I don't look at you through the lens of your mistakes. I look at you through the lens of who I created you to be. I don't know about you, but this is necessary in my life because I keep messing up. I keep messing up. And sometimes it is so bad that I go, man, I don't, Jesus, I don't do the things I say I'm gonna do and I kind of do the things I say I'm not gonna do. If people could read my mind and my thoughts as you can, I mean, it's not impressive. And there's a moment a few years ago, I thought, oh God, what do you think about me? Because if I let you down, like I, if I let other, if someone let me down, like I let you down, I'd call time. I'd call time. It's like, dude, a friend keeps on doing this. I don't know what I think. And I was praying, I had this image come to mind of a young boy, and it was me, a young little chubby 10-year-old, <laughs> doing an egg and spoon race. Do you know an egg and spoon race? And I had my little spoon, I had a little egg on top, and over there on the side was, like, not my real dad, but like a, a father. And there's all the parents on the one side, and they're all, and the the whistle blew and we all went and I was running, I was running, running. And then I messed up. I, I went too fast or I did something and the egg fell off. And someone forgot to boil the eggs like in a good egg and spoon race. And my egg fell off and smashed. I thought, oh, I've done it again. I'm out, I've messed up. I thought, what's, what's my dad gonna do? And then in, in this picture I saw, I saw my dad my heavenly dad, like rush up to me, come up to, to my son and, and see the broken neck. And saw me kind of crying and like, dad, I've messed up, I went, it's over. It's about, and he went, son, it's okay, get up. I got another egg. Let's go. He was cheering me on, cheering me on. And guess what happened three steps later? I messed up again. The egg fell off. And my father came up and went, it's okay, it's okay, keep going. I got another egg. God's got a thousand eggs. Uh, no matter how many you spill over. He says, I got another egg, let's keep going. I got, I'm cheering you on, I'm for you. My love for you will never fail. Yes, you mess up and sometimes, dude, I need to help you. Don't do that to the egg. I need to train you. I'm gonna intervene sometimes and go, yeah, don't do that. I mean, that won't be good. That will smash the egg, but let me help. But don't worry, I will never stop cheering you on, giving you more eggs, because we're in this together for the long haul, my mercy always triumphs over justice. 
I will intervene, but I'm intervening just enough. Come on, let's run this race together. Mercy triumphs over justice. The Apostle Paul summarized this at the very end by saying the ultimate expression of mercy triumphing over justice is not just in Exodus 34, it's not just in my life, he says, but the ultimate expression of a God who shows loving mercy and justice, but mercy wins, is on the cross. That God would look at you and me and all the brokenness, the mess, and love us so much that he would swallow justice for us, that we might be free. I'm gonna read what the Apostle Paul said to close. It's kind of his way of going, this is Exodus 34 on display in the cross of Christ. And he says this in Ephesians 2, once you were dead, because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. And by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger. We are what's wrong with this place. But God is so rich in mercy. And he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's mercy and grace that we have been saved. Mercy triumphs over justice. Let's stand together. Our prayer team are gonna come up and we're gonna worship now. Come forward for anything. Whatever you're in, whatever situation you need, whatever your request, we have a God abounding in mercy, cheering you on. Come up for prayer. And let's worship the God who loves us to a thousand. Let's worship. Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.